Welcome to the Merlin Podcast, bringing Europe's fresh waters back to life. In October this year, the WWF released a major report stating that fresh water has long been significantly undervalued in global economies, leading to widespread environmental costs. The report estimates that the annual economic value of water and freshwater ecosystems globally is $58 trillion a figure equivalent to 60% of global gross domestic product, or GDP. This startling figure was calculated by estimating the economic value that rivers, streams, lakes, reservoirs and wetlands generate to human societies. The report showed that freshwater ecosystems are not only vital for sustaining everyday societies, they also provide invaluable life support systems which help maintain the health of both people and the planet. In this episode of the Merlin Podcast, we're going to deep dive into key topics around the economics of water. I'm your host, Rob St. John, and with me for this episode is my colleague, Sinkok. Hi, my name is Sinkok. Over the past seven years, I have been working at the Research Institute Deltares and currently also the University of Wageningen in the field of environmental economics in the water sector on things like flood risk management and nature-based solutions. In the water sector, we use instruments like cost-benefit and cost-effectiveness analysis to help decision makers. And to me, it feels like these tools have always been there and are here to stay. On the other hand, I have spent half my career so far explaining their value to non-economists. In this podcast, we will explore where this field of water economics has come from, what it entails and has brought us so far, and of course, moving forward, what economic thinking can bring to the agenda of restoring Europe's freshwaters. To answer these questions, we spoke to some key people involved in the economics of freshwater restoration in Europe. We started by asking a simple question. What is economics to our experts? The general consensus is that economics is about supporting strategic decision-making and a way to integrate all different effects, goals and benefits of a policy or an investment. In other words, policymakers want to know if an investment is in proportion to the benefits that it will generate to the river catchment. But economics is also about creating incentives to get people and businesses to move into the direction that you want. For example, in encouraging more sustainable use of river catchments. And that last point is vital. Just think of the impacts of recent droughts exacerbated by the climate crisis and the struggles that we have with pollution in our freshwaters. To get to grips with this issue, let's start with the big policy shaping water management in Europe. The adoption of the Water Framework Directive in 2000 is a key moment for the use of economics within freshwater conservation and restoration. Eddie Interies is an economic and political scientist in environmental policy and he's an expert on the Water Framework Directive. His work focuses on freshwater and marine issues and involves research projects and consultancy for the German government as well as at the European and UN level. We asked Eddie about the role of water economics in encouraging healthy European freshwaters through the Water Framework Directive. Before that, we had a lot of fragmentation, especially in European water policy with different directives, urban wastewater and groundwater and so on and so on. And in the year 2000, the awareness, let's say, was implemented that we need a more integrative approach to water policy. So the Water Framework Directive 
tries to bring together different elements, but also disciplines in order to have a more integrative approach uh, in order to reach quite specific environmental objectives. So that was also then the point in time where the bits and pieces on, on water economics came together in the Water Framework Directive, which was one of the first European directives that uh, had the specific focus also on economics and socioeconomics. So um, that was the starting point, but, um, and maybe the why, uh, especially in water economics, why was water in the forefront on this, let's say, um, more stronger focus on economics? Uh, well, uh, money matters. So on the one side, the awareness that investments are needed for water, wastewater, freshwater restoration and so on. Also with a EU expansion where we saw that we need to, to do a lot of additional investments. Um, so the question was, uh, how do we do that? So economics play a role. At the same time, um, water pricing uh, is an important one because it has also economic development perspective, but also social perspective. This idea of water pricing is important, and Eddie gives a brief primer on what it means. What do we pay for water services? So the very simple one is uh, how much do we pay for our tap water? Mm-hmm. How much do we pay for our agricultural water? but also the wastewater services that the public or also enterprises get. Um, how much do we pay for these services? So uh, let's say, um, yeah, w- what comes out of our pocket for uh, different water-related services? And uh, that needs to be seen also with the investment side because you want to have water services that in the long term are sustainable in one way or another. You don't want your water company to go broke. So the question is, how do you raise enough money for them to function properly? But at the same time, and that's where the pricing comes in, to have socially fair uh, pricing. So that's a big issue. And becoming more technical uh, on the cost side, what also the Water Framework Directive said is that we have also environmental and resource costs mm, related to uh, the water that we get provided or the wastewater services. And the Water Framework Directive tells us that we need to recover also sufficient part of these costs. It's here that we encounter another key economic concept, the polluter pays principle. That was also, that is a significant element of the Water Framework Directive. So at least in theory, uh, whoever pollutes the water or uses the water should pay for it. Sounds Mm. simple, but if we move to issues of agriculture and so on, it becomes a bit more difficult to implement. And the last Last point I want to raise about um, why were water economics so important, it's the increasing awareness of the potential use of economic instruments, so charges, fees, and so on, bringing together the aspects of polluter pays, but also creating incentives. So if the price uh, is at a level that hurts you if you use water not wisely, then at least you should consider of using less water. So what have we learned after 23 years and counting 
of water economics helping shape how we manage Europe's fresh waters? Have aspirations been reached? Uh, I don't want to be too pessimistic, but my personal view is that uh, no, let's say our dream was to uh, uh, to achieve more. And maybe that was a bit an uh, too optimistic approach. Seeing it from the positive side, there has been increasing awareness, especially since the Water Framework Directive, that economics, socioeconomics are important. So it, uh, there are, have been discussions mainly on technical level, on uh, what does it mean, all these concepts we talked about. There have been theoretical improvements on how we link uh, these different elements, what they exactly mean, and also some guidance on how you could make it practical. So um, that would be the optimistic side increasing awareness also through the river based management plans that have have to be established and have been established based on the water framework directive and so on but also the floods directive later one of the key tools used by economists is the cost benefit analysis this is a tool in which all investment costs are compared to the benefits where possible everything is translated into monetary or euro terms to make them comparable this is done from a social welfare point of view, in order to see if society as a whole is better off with or without the project or policy. A good example can be found in the recent cost-benefit analyses underpinning the EU nature restoration law. The law, provisionally agreed earlier this month, prompts EU countries to restore at least 20% of their land and seas by 2030. The law states that at least 25,000 kilometres of rivers across the continent must be restored into a free-flowing state by 2030. With additional targets running to 2050 and beyond, the Nature Restoration Law represents a significant attempt to restore habitats and achieve climate neutrality across Europe. But, as the complex and heated debates around its adoption have shown, Putting such ambitious policy into practice is not straightforward. One key strategy adopted by proponents of the law has been to cite the economic benefits of large-scale restoration across Europe. Their cost-benefit analysis suggests that every euro spent on restoration provides a return on investment of between 8 and 38 euros, depending on the ecosystem. For freshwaters, it's estimated that 35 to 40 billion euros in investment into restoration will generate between 862 to 1053 billion euros in return. This is due to the benefits that healthy, functioning fresh waters provide to society. Things like water purification, flood protection, fish stocks and climate change mitigation. In other words, this cost-benefit analysis suggests that large-scale freshwater restoration doesn't only make environmental sense, it makes economic sense too. We spoke to Rob van der Veren from Rijkswaterstaat to find out how cost-benefit analysis have helped inform water policy in the Netherlands. Rob is an economist working on supporting water management policy, both in the marine and freshwater environment. I think that the experience with uh, the economic analysis and especially the cost-benefit analysis that we performed for the Water Framework Directive is really interesting to see that we did actually three types of cost-benefit analysis. Uh, we started off in 2006 something um, 
on uh, doing a uh, cost-benefit analysis at a very broad brush level just to inform policy, okay, there is this new water framework directive coming on and what does it mean? What type of measures are we talking about? What type of costs are we talking about? What are the orders of magnitudes of the benefits? What type of benefits? So it's really just to inform the parliament, okay, there is something going on here and uh, this might be uh, the orders of magnitudes of the potential impact. We really wanted to also, again, show it to Dutch parliament what is going to happen, mm. what are the potential costs and benefits and things like that. So it was really... Also, it was not only crunching numbers, and the, the value added was not really in crunching the numbers. Mm -hmm. But um, I think what really was um, interesting here is that working together, you get some kind of a common knowledge, common uh, language, um, and it is an entire process. And the process itself, I think that might have been very important as well, to, that you get more thorough understanding of what they are doing, how it links to other aspects and what are the interests of everybody and having that kind of a discussion as well. I mean, it's underlying and more implicit, but I think it was very useful as well. So it's first just informing Parliament, okay, there is something co coming up. Secondly, we want to give some regional water authorities directions in which way the program of measures should be steered. And then the third one is giving an overview of the costs and benefits of program measures that uh, has actually then uh, finalized. Mm -hmm. I think that was a very interesting way of seeing how economic analysis have been used in the policy process. The Water Framework Directive has the ambitious target of all surface and groundwaters in Europe reaching good status by 2027. Whilst it's widely acknowledged that this target will not be reached, cost-benefit analyses have been key in helping policymakers make strong economic arguments for the value of fresh waters. One of the things that uh, we are working on um, now that 2027 is coming close, um, where we really have to make sure that we have uh, achieved all objectives. Many member states are right now struggling, how can we argue that we are not going to achieve those objectives? Disproportionate cost is one way of saying, okay, if we would have mm -hmm. done a little bit more, well, it is technically possible, but absolutely not affordable. Yeah. So you have discussions on affordability, disproportionality, and that is uh, something that, you know, disproportionate costs, uh, as also stated by the water directors, should not start at the moment that the uh, costs outweigh benefits. It should really be cost outweigh benefits by far. Um, so there uh, you have a good reason why you should perform cost-benefit analysis to really be able to show, okay, this is what you uh, pay, this is what you get, and um, is it affordable or not? Is it proportionate or not mm. and if you say um, well this is not uh, proportionate then you might have a reason to say okay but if this is the um, level of the targets that we can achieve then that is what, what we will be going for obviously uh, you have the obligation to at least start try to do as much as possible but 
you're not um, required to do the impossible. So, As both Eddie and Rob have shown us, economics can offer a valuable bridge between freshwater restoration and policy. Here's Philippe Lequent, an environmental economist from the French Geological Survey. Economics is what speaks to decision makers. When you start speaking about economic analysis, uh, it's a way to convince uh, and make decision makers understand that uh, this type of solution may be relevant. But then also economics can be, I mean, used um, to, to decide on how to allocate scarce resources and it can help prioritizing uh, the, the type of action and the type of areas that you would use for nature-based solutions. So economics might help us decide where and how we undertake restoration projects. So far, we've heard from three economists, but we're also interested to hear what do ecologists make of all this? Here's Daniel Herring, an environmental scientist from the University of Duisburg-Essen. Daniel leads the EU Merlin project, which seeks to mainstream ambitious freshwater restoration projects across Europe. I think as soon as we think big in freshwater restoration, uh, then it is almost inevitable to to discuss and uh, to find solutions together with economists. I would give you an example. So we have in Germany about 10,000 square kilometers drained peatlands. And uh, our government has now this shining target uh, that in, in the year 45, 2045, all these should be revetted because by then Germany would like to be climate neutral. So we have to revet approximately 500 square kilometers peatland uh, per year, uh, which is a huge effort. And it is, of course, completely unrealistic if you just rely on public money. So the, the only option to... Um, to obtain these goals, to reach these goals, in fact, um, is to to work with economic incentives and uh, to motivate uh, well, these landowners and the farmers to uh, to do this revetting. Uh, well, also for for their own economic benefit. One of uh, the things was that was most surprising to me is in fact that uh, uh, how well diverse this fields of economic incentives is, in fact. So we are now in Merlin also producing the so-called off-the-shelf instruments for more than a dozen um, of different e economic instruments. And there are basically approaches and also some initial examples for all of these. So it is not just one route. So there are very, very different routes that, that can also then be, of course, adapted um, to, to the needs of the individual projects. This is very promising from my point of view. And also, well, the, the motivation of um, many people from with an economic background to step into this area. In some cases, uh, simply be because they, they think it might be a good business case, uh, but also from a more intrinsic motivation very often. So this is extremely promising from my point of view. So now we've heard about the role economics has played in the Water Framework Directive and water policy in general. To support restoration of fresh waters, nature-based solutions are of particular interest. These are environmental management approaches that are based on using natural processes to address either typical water management challenges, like floods or droughts, or the restoration of biodiversity itself. In the past decades, we have used grey solutions for this. Think dike, groins, regulation, drainage or dams. Nature-based solutions like restoring wetlands, re-meandering streams and rivers and restoring floodplains can both address these water management challenges and support the restoration of nature. 
Philippe Lecoyant has worked in the European research project NIAD on the economic assessment of these nature-based solutions. And we asked him to tell us about main lessons learned in this work. What we have seen is that basically, um, if you compare a nature-based solution to grey solutions, uh, in terms of cost, we've, we've clearly seen this general advantage that is acknowledged in many cases that uh, the cost of the implementation and maintenance uh, of nature-based solution is lower than the gray alternatives. So that's that was quite clear in the. So we we carried out the same methodology in the, in at least at the end in three case studies. I mean the full methodology in, in three of the case studies in France and in Rotterdam, and we have the same results of, on this particular aspect. The other big conclusion of the economic analysis is also that you have to consider the whole breadth of benefits that are produced by nature-based solution if you want to see the economic advantage of these solutions. If you consider only, for example, uh, the project was aiming at uh, nature-based solution to reduce water risks. If you consider only this particular benefit and if you compare it to the costs, then the economic advantage of nature-based solution is not necessarily clear. But you, if you consider the whole breadth of benefits, that is the specificity of nature-based solution, that they produce a, a, lo a lot of different benefits, then a nature-based solution become uh, very uh, much more interesting uh, from an economic standpoint. The only limit, maybe, is that uh, if you consider what we call opportunity cost in economics, that is uh, taking into account uh, the fact that you are using resources that may have other use, other profitable use, considering that uh, nature-based solutions are using a lot of space uh, in many cases. Cost-benefit analyses can also be vital in bridging the gap to bring together funds for nature-based solutions in freshwater restoration. Is Philippe again. It, it changed their way of seeing uh, uh, the advantages and the cost of, uh, of nature-based solutions. Uh, for the case of Rotterdam, uh, the, um, the, the project was already had already started, I think, but when they, they realized that uh, the, 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 the share of co-benefits also in the, in, the, um, in, the, in the overall advantage of the, the, the work that they were doing, uh, it's, uh, so uh, they they started thinking about how to uh, increase uh, in more even those benefits. Uh, they were a bit focusing on the main objective that they had, which was about uh, uh, risk management. But then they, when they realized how important it was in the overall uh, economic analysis of the project, the, the co-benefits, they they realized that they have to also consider and to maximize those benefits in the way they design the project. Doing these cost-benefit analysis can contribute, I think, to, to convincing uh, decision-makers that this should be part of the solution that needs to be considered. This concept of valuing ecosystem services in monetary terms is important in the context of doing economic analysis of freshwater restoration or nature-based solutions. We asked Rob van der Vere to give us a few examples of how they went about valuing some of those services in their cost-benefit analysis for the Water Framework Directive in the Netherlands. Well, we... we did uh, look at drinking water. So looking at, um, yeah, maybe because of high nutrient concentration, you will have more algae and uh, also other troubles uh, with the water quality uh, if you're going to use it for surface water, um, you know, the use of surface water for drinking water purposes. So then you might have to purify a little bit more and have costs uh, revolt to that. Um, the same applies to industry that uh, also uses sometimes uh, surface water for different purposes. Uh, so we looked at those um, and then recreation um, 
you know, if you increase the environment, the natural environment, and also the water quality, people might uh, be ha more happy with that and uh, have a higher uh, value for their recreational activities. So uh, trying to value those recreational amenities, that's what we also try to do. And uh, we also looked at uh, housing. Um, I mean, people uh, living close to rivers or lakes or whatever, um, you know, that's, that's nice but only if the water quality is good. So um, we assume that if the water quality improves, then uh, maybe uh, people are more happy to live there. And one way um, economists try to value that is by catching the, looking at the house prices. So you're looking at similar houses uh, in similar situations where you have only one dif uh, difference in between those two, which is change in water quality. So, uh, and then, if you uh, would then have an increase in water quality, you would expect an increase in the housing prices. Financing freshwater restoration is an important topic that we'll address in more depth in a future podcast. The multiple benefits of nature-based solutions open up new avenues for financing, as Philippe outlines. It's the diversity of benefits that is the specificity of nature-based solution. This creates uh, this. This is issues in terms of financing um, in many in many cases because you in many cases because you have this diversity of benefits. But the funds that are usually used to to help implementing these solutions are many in many cases dedicated one to one specific benefits. For example, in France. If you want to, uh, if you have a, a flooding problem, there is a fund that is dedicated to implement solution to reduce this flood risk. But if you want to implement it, uh, the, the the even solution has to be uh, have a positive cost benefit analysis for this, considering only this particular benefit. And in some cases, this is not the case for nature-based solutions. So, so the, it creates a, a a problem because you you don't have a one place to get the money basically uh, for, for to implement these solutions so you have to blend finance uh, finances to be able to pay for to to to, to implement this project which creates a, a difficulty for implementing a nature-based solution we've heard so far that there are significant opportunities for economics in supporting freshwater restoration but there are also key obstacles to overcome what do we need to work on to improve the value of economics to freshwater restoration we asked Eddie Interwies to what extent he thought the growing field of water economics has influenced how we manage and govern Europe's freshwaters. The actual impact of all this thinking and concept has been quite limited in actual everyday water-related policymaking. The reasons for that, I think, are various. Um, on the one side, let's say these concepts have been quite new, there are not that many water economists around. Let's say the water administrations, to talk about the practical impact, are not do not have a lot of water economists. Twenty-three years later, they were uh, uh, really strange people compared to the classical water managers being engineers. There is some some increase on uh, capacities, new people coming in, but also the average water policy person's uh, hearing and understanding more of the concepts. Um, but at the same time, 
what we actually then achieved in practice. So to implement this pricing, polluted place and so on, we didn't got that far. The concepts are quite complex. We are lacking data. So very often uh, we get asked simple questions. Tell us how we'll implement the polluted place principle. Mm. But the answer is uh, just out of uh, reality, quite complex. So uh, having improved on the concepts is a step forward, um, but the actual uptake uh, has been limited. Besides, let's say, this technical issues, difficult to understand, lack of data, mm. different concepts that have to be brought together, there has been also some institutional resistance, which is linked to sectoral interests on the one side i mean not wanting to talk just about agriculture but there is some issues there and on the other side you have also the institutional resistance of the water authorities administrations themselves because they say hey we've been doing this in centuries why do you people come along and tell us we need to do things differently and the the idea of water economists i think is not to do something uh, extremely different, but to at least get transparency mm. and to say, uh, to, to, to put a question mark behind the decisions we take. Daniel Herring sees significant opportunities to bring together economics and ecology in freshwater restoration. The, the question of assessment and valuation is also basically a question of applied ecology. And many of these tools, so for example, multi-criteria decision-making and uh, valuation in general, or decision support tools, they are also quite frequently applied in water management and also in ecological decision-making. Um, I think the, the challenge is always to, to jointly develop such tools or to, to optimize such tools. And uh, again, this uh, requires, of course, cooperation, simply because the valuation of ecosystem services, for example, it can be done from a from a uh, pure economic way, uh, but it also might give a lot of um, non-monetary values. Um, and there are the 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 ecologists, amongst others, come into play. So I think from from the more more tech technical approaches, uh, well, we are not so far distant from each other, but still the devil is in the details, and uh, we we need to cooperate better to to make things uh, applicable for both sides. We return to the question of what role economics and economists can play in supporting freshwater restoration moving forward. Here's Eddie Interwies to outline the current status of this field. Yeah, I think the issue of transparency, so of better understanding what we are actually doing and what the effect of uh, different measures, activities we take can be, that's uh, a function that water economics can play. So to give a better uh, decision-making base at various levels, because I think to restoration agenda is a huge term that has a very strategic uh, aspect. So we're talking about European policy, what do we focus on, or national policy. But when we go regional or even local, um, we get more and more into specific projects. So we say like, hey, do we restore uh, this part of the river or another one? Do we invest a lot regarding restoration on specific parts or do we do uh, 
less costly measures for more kilometers of the river. All of these questions, of course, have a strong technical perspective. So we absolutely need the engineers, ecologists, biologists that actually know what they're talking about. But we as economists can help uh, structure and assess the different information regarding both the costs, but also the effects, positive and negative side effects of specific measures. So there is a strategic um, aspect to it, to what we can do, but also a project related ones. What we can do, let's say, regarding next steps, uh, and that's the tasks of the economists, is to link different concepts. So we talk about uh, nature-based solutions, we talk about uh, natural capital accounting, we talk about environmental objectives of the Water Framework Directive, where uh, economics always plays a role. How do all of these things uh, link together? And uh, because I think for practitioners, it's quite overwhelming. You talk to person A, he's a big fan of this concept. You talk to person B, he's a fan of another concept. So we need to show the links of the different concepts. And even more importantly, um, how and what do we use in practice? One key takeaway for Eddie is the importance of good communication, of finding shared languages to talk about the many benefits of freshwater restoration. Uh, communicate it in as easy as possible terms. So especially for uh, people that are not economists, you cannot come, come with theoretical concepts. You have to be based on that and be academically sound, but you need to provide uh, practical advice on that's easy to understand and sufficiently easy to implement regarding also how much it costs. But also when we talk about a specific project, you have a problem regarding biodiversity or floods or combined and a certain stretch of a river. How do you approach an economic or socioeconomic uh, uh, assessment regarding the different options you have? And there are people trying to do that, uh, especially from academic side, but there still is this gap to practical policy making because uh, all of us think we are the most important people and our work is the most important one, but people actually taking the decisions have uh, a lot of various things to think about and we need to provide them with something they can actually use. I think that at the end of the day, be it the strategic uh, water biodiversity managers or the very practical ones at the project level mm. need some specific, easy-to-use guidance on what they need to consider and what they can do in order to use economics. We need um, also fundamental research or also policy-oriented research to continue and provide us uh, new insights, new methods, new in integration of concepts and so on. But at the end of the day, I think we still need some function of translators that understand what the policy side needs at various levels and what the academic world actually can provide. All of this discussion 
is about creating the groundwork for more ambitious and effective freshwater restoration in the midst of the climate emergency and ecological crisis that we find ourselves in. We finish with Daniel Herring outlining his optimistic outlook for the potential to upscale restoration through better engagement with economics. So currently most of these restoration projects are relatively small. They are very often isolated and they do not really reach a landscape level or a catchment level. And I think only by economic incentives and by involving many of the landowners or the majority of the landowners and of the practitioners, it will be possible to, to reach another level. And with that, we've come to the end of our podcast. I hope you now have a better idea of what economics is and can bring in the context of freshwater restoration. For me, our talks with Philippe, Rob, Eddie and Daniel has brought some clarity on economics being not just about seeing if an investment is in proportion to the benefits, but perhaps more importantly, a way to integrate all the different effects, goals and benefits of a policy into decision support and provide transparency in the decision-making process. And something I was less familiar with, it is also about creating incentives to get people and businesses to move into the direction that you want, albeit via subsidies or taxes or regulation. We've also learned the role of this field and its impact in freshwater policy in general is perhaps not as large as my colleague economists originally hoped, but the value is increasingly being recognized. To make it even stronger, us economists have to work better in communicating our work and making it as useful as possible for policymakers and environmental managers on the ground. You can find out more about the Merlin project at project-merlin.eu. You can also keep up with progress on social media and at freshwaterblog.net. The Merlin Project is funded by the European Commission's Horizon 2020 programme. This podcast was presented and produced by me, Rob St. John, with my colleague, Seen Cock. And the theme music is by Merlin Project coordinator, Sebastian Burke's band, Scala. The background music is by Scott Buckley. Please do like, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you've enjoyed it, tell a friend. Until next time. Thanks for tuning in.